My guest is Anu Bradford. Anu Bradford is a professor at Columbia Law School and the author of a new book, Digital Empires, The Global Battle to Regulate Technology. Welcome to the podcast, Anu. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Well, I actually should say welcome back to the podcast because back in May 2021, we did another of these conversations on the basis of your previous book, the now extremely famous The Brussels Effect. So it's great to have you back. So in a nutshell, for our listeners, Anu, for people who haven't read your latest weighty tome, can you set out your stall in, a, in as succinctly as possible? What is Digital Empires all about? The Digital Empire starts from this premise um, that there is increasingly globally a consensus that we need to regulate digital economy, but there is no consensus on how we ought to do that. So the digital empires argues that there are three primary ways to think about digital governance. There is the American market-driven regulatory model, a Chinese state-driven regulatory model, and the European, what I call a rights-driven model. So the book explains the origins, the, the values behind these models, and how they are shaping the, the, the technology around us. And then it also focuses on various battles, what happens when these regulatory models come into conflict and the companies need to navigate conflicting demands by various regulators. And then it does ask the question whether ultimately one of these models or some of these models are more influential and then gain create attraction across the world. Right. Thank you for that. So you talk about the this kind of horizontal competition between the various jurisdictions, the United States, the European Union and China, essentially. And then you talk then also about what you call vertical competition between these these regulators and the and the companies, the, the tech sector essentially that they choose to seek to to regulate. And if you superimpose those two frameworks on top of each other in a kind of matrix, that's quite a, a complex picture. How did you manage to kind of almost uh, undo that and extricate yourself? Because it is quite a complex jungle out there. So th that is absolutely right, Paul. So one of, I think, the main goals of writing this book was to try to make sense of an increasingly complex world and give um, a, an account of that world that is nuanced, that acknowledges the complexities, but at the same time that brings analytical clarity to the conversation. So it gives us a framework to approach that conversation, make sense of the, the digital world around us. And that's why I think it, it's helpful to Think about this in terms of two level battles that we are observing. So there is indeed the horizontal battle between the digital empires, uh, the United States, China and the EU, but at the same time explaining how each of these uh, digital empires is fighting vertical battles in their own jurisdiction. So trying to rein in the tech companies that are shaping digital economies and societies. And a lot of the discussion is how these two levels of battles actually intersect. What I find intriguing, or maybe I'm just missing the point, is how it's not enough for each jurisdiction to have its own empire in the terms of how they set their own rules for their own part of the world they, they occupy, but they also want to export right their standards and their regulatory uh, approach to the, to the rest of the world, hence your use of the choice of the word uh, empire. So it's, so it's not enough, in other words, for the US, EU and China just to regulate their own, uh, the companies operating within their own territory. They want to go beyond that, rather like the Brussels effect, but on a global level. Indeed, Paul, I use the word empire. I use it metaphorically, but I think it is helpful in illustrating what is actually happening. 
So none of these regulatory models are confined to the jurisdiction itself, but each empire is expanding its sphere of influence by exporting the, the values and norms that are part of the regulatory model. And, and uh, so what is interesting here is that there are they are exporting something different. The United States is primarily exporting the private power of its tech companies. China is exporting infrastructure power. So it's building 5G networks and data centers and undersea cables across the world. And the Europeans are exporting the superpower that they have, namely regulation. So digital regulations get exported through this phenomenon that I have previously labeled the Brussels effect. So it is a big part of the story because this is how the empires also collide. They come into conflict in various third markets where you at the same time can witness the presence of American tech companies, Chinese infrastructure and European regulations. So that also, Paul, explains why we don't see this kind of clear uh, splinter net or the, the, the whole global digital economy being uh, uh, sort of compartmentalized into the different fragmented spheres. Instead, the, the influence of the empires is largely overlapping because each of them is contributing a different layer to the digital governance. Right. So this overlapping is important, isn't it? Because like the good social scientist, political scientist that you are, you need obviously to set out your stall in, in basic analytical terms like to make the, the clarity or exposition of these three jurisdictions. Uh, but at the same time, you acknowledge very early on in the book that certainly when it comes to the United States and the uh, European Union, these are not perfect systems, or at least they're evolving systems. By that, I mean, you you say that the US is realizing now that the, the market-driven model is not uh, appropriate for them. They need to, the US has to increasingly regulate because of various things like the famous backlash, the tech clash to the tech sector in the United States and elsewhere. And you say also that the European Union has a problem, not so much in overregulation, which is what the kind of the caricature of the EU is, but you contend is under-regulation in the sense of not that aren't enough regulations out there, but they're not properly enforced. Mm -hmm. So these two models in particular, as opposed to the Chinese one, are in, in a great state of constant evolution, it seems to me. Absolutely. So that is a, a big part of the story that these models are not absolute. They are not pure. They have elements uh, of various other models as well. So if you think about the American market driven model, and this is really, Paul, a significant shift that we are now witnessing. So there is generally globally a, a growing resentment against this excessive power of tech companies. They exert economic power, political power, informational power, and cultural power over individuals and societies to the extent that the citizens around the world and governments are no longer comfortable with the kind of leverage they have over our societies. So even Americans are now starting to wonder whether these techno-libertarian, techno-optimist foundations of the American society really serve the needs of today's digital economy. And the public opinion is shifting away from supporting that kind of market-driven model. And the American citizens are calling for more regulation. You also see many members of Congress put forward various bills that would move uh, move the United States closer to the European rights-driven model. But we still have certain very entrenched elements that, that, are, that are making harder to really um, 
sort of realize that shift in the United States. So we have a dysfunctional Congress that is not able to legislate uh, without a great, great difficulty. We have a lot of lobbying by the tech companies that also helps maintain status quo despite of that shifting political dynamic. And Paul, all these conversations in the United States about the need to regulate tech companies take place in the shadow of the the ongoing U.S.-China tech war. So there remains a concern that what might happen if the U.S. cracks down on its really important asset, that the wealthy, innovative tech sector, so that it would actually lose its ability then to effectively contest uh, China in the race for technological supremacy. So that is just one uh, example of how there are pressures within each model to also shift uh, to a different equilibrium, but also some forces that then then help maintain uh, the key features of the model. We'll we'll move on to China in a, in a moment, but before we do that, I remember in the Brussels effect, you talk about a lot about how tech companies here in Brussels uh, lobby robustly, should we say, to to block or obstruct or di- certainly dilute. Uh, many of the regulations which will directly impact them. But as and when these regulations are finally approved in what a shape or f- form ultimately emerges, they, these tech companies then uh, accept the reality of what's happening. And then when they're back in Washington, D.C., when it comes to lobbying there, they say, well, we, we have to lobby to have a, the European version of regulations adopted in the United States to, for, to make it easier to operate. Is that kind of a fair representation of what you've been writing about? So that certainly happens in some domains. And and we can see how the companies that the leading U.S. tech companies have adjusted their global privacy policies to the EU's GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, and then went on to lobby the U.S. Congress for a similar regulation in the United States. So, So there are certainly aspects of regulation where these companies recognize that, look, we need to access the European market, we need to do business there, which means we need to conform our conduct to their the rules. And since we already um, uh, invest in this kind of regulatory adjustment and make our systems, our products and services compatible with the European regulations, it is not that hard for us to then extend them to the United States as well. But that doesn't mean, Paul, that it happens across the board. Uh, In some domains, the tech companies still find that the regulatory adjustment is costly, and they are trying to see if it is worth their while to then maintain their existing business models in some other large markets, including the United States. Is that still, therefore, a a live debate in the US and even to a certain extent in the European Union that uh, the, the classic assertion made by companies, which is that regulation is a, an obstacle to, to innovation as opposed to being a spur to innovation, then detractors say exactly the opposite, that with, with regulation, that actually it, it creates more innovation. Is that debate still ongoing and live? Oh, it, it certainly is. And there are those who hold the view that every time you regulate the digital economy, there is an inevitable trade-off, which means we are going to see less innovation. And and I don't say, Paul, that all regulation is beneficial or optimal, but, but neither is all innovation. So through regulation, the goal is to, to change to some extent the pathways for innovation, to make sure that the companies are investing in the kind of innovations that are beneficial for our econ- economies and for our societies, 
but also then curtail investment in the kind of information innovation where we uh, observe more harmful effects. And uh, so I am less sympathetic to this notion that that regulation um, would always uh, undermine incentives to innovate. I think we have seen many European regulations that have led the U.S. tech companies to uh, undertake efforts to comply. And few of us think that they have no longer innovated. Um, there's also this perception that the Europeans, since they are so known, well known for their propensity to regulate, but at the same time, we don't observe that many leading European tech companies emerging from the EU, that somehow there would be a connection, that it is because the EU's commitment to digital regulation, we cannot see it innovate. And here, Paul, I have certain serious concerns about the state of European technological innovation, but I don't think uh, that Europe is behind the US because of digital regulation. There are many more fundamental pillars of the tech ecosystem that, that set the European experience apart from the US and, and that calls for very different types of reforms. And uh, But it is not that by repealing the GDPR or deciding not to go ahead with AI Act that we suddenly would see a booming tech sector emerge from the EU. But you're, you're very outspoken, though, aren't you, about how the EU is weak on enforcement. There's this great digital agenda, which has been one of the flagships of the van der Leyen Commission for the past four years, beheaded by Thierry Breton and Margaret Vestea. But you're saying, OK, these rules finally get adopted after a certain amount of lobbying, obviously. But then when it comes to enforcement at the national level, then all of a sudden things change. Why is that? What can be done to address that? Yes, Paul, it is right that those who are big supporters of Europe also need to be its honest critics. And, and there is there are certain issues where I think Europe has not fulfilled its promise. And, and one is that many of the goals of these regulations remain still uh, unfulfilled. So the Europeans have been very good at promulgating regulations, but less good at actually entrenching these regulations into concrete actual market outcomes. So we have seen 10 billion in fines against Google in various competition law cases, but still we haven't really managed to unlock the market dominance that Google, Google holds. And we haven't seen the kind of competition in the marketplace that, that the European enforcers probably would have hoped to see. So there are a couple of things, uh, Paul. So one is that the European enforcement has too much relied on fines. And these are very wealthy companies that can treat these fines as the price for doing business in the EU. So as long as you leave their business models untouched, they are able to continue to exploit the consumers, exploit their dominance in the marketplace, and, and little changes in the end. So, so here we actually now see the European regulators trying to shift to a different tactic. So we, we saw really ambitious regulations uh, being adopted by the Parliament and Council. So we have the Digital Services Act that deals with content moderation and Digital Markets Act that deals with an ex-anti-regulation of gatekeepers. So it is part of the competition regulation and an attempt to really um, try to not only sort of ex ante evaluate whether competition rules have been breached and then take on these years long investigations that take a long time to actually then establish uh, a harm to consumers. There are certain assumptions uh, embedded in these regulations, a set of conduct that is just outlawed uh, upfront. 
And that should give the European Commission a very different toolkit to, to actually target the business models that are at the center of the concern. And now the big test case is, Paul, whether we will see a different outcome. So when the DSA and DMA are being enforced, do we see a different kind of digital marketplace as a result? Right. Let's move on to China then. And the way I read it in your book, it gives me the very strong impression that you, that uh, China has almost all the, the cards in its hand because it's a it's an authoritarian regime. It can just impose its own rules without fear of any kind of resistance for obvious reasons. And in terms of the, this empire metaphor you've been using, they're, they're exporting their, their regulatory model. Then other parts of the world, not the EU, obviously not the United States, but other parts of the world, Latin America, Africa, parts of Asia, seem increasingly uh, uh, keen to uh, adapt the Chinese model. Is that a, a fair representation or slightly oversimplified? Well, well, there is a, a lot of nuance in the argument, but the broad strokes are correct in terms of the book acknowledging the tremendous influence that China has had through exporting its infrastructure power and how many countries around the world, they don't dream of the kind of rights-driven model that the Europeans have pioneered. There are many developing countries for whom they data privacy, for instance, is not their main concern. They worry about their physical safety. They like the idea of having more surveillance that the Chinese technologies are bringing so that there is more robust law enforcement. Many of these countries also simply need a path to digital development. And the Chinese infrastructure does provide that path. It is pretty good infrastructure and it is affordable, which is really important for for these countries. And if the US and the EU don't provide an alternative, it is a really big ask to to request these countries to to turn down Chinese infrastructure that 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 ultimately they they consider uh, beneficial for their societies. And and then Paul, there are also certain issues that that make it hard for the US and the EU to counter the influence of of Chinese digital authoritarianism. So one for one, it is hard for us to admit, but the truth is that China has shown to the world that that freedom is not necessary for innovation. They have managed to create a thriving digital economy, and it is hard for the US and the EU to go to these third countries and say that, look, if you choose the Chinese state-driven model, you will you will benefit from greater control, but you will not experience economic growth and innovation. These countries look at China and say, look, I like what I'm seeing. I can get both. I can have political control and I can also have innovation. So that is one. And, and the other concern that I have, Paul, and this is really goes to the, the, the key arguments of the book, is that we are still struggling to show that liberal democracy works, that we can effectively govern the digital economy in our societies. So the United States Congress is largely paralyzed. We do not see them successfully legislate on anything. Chinese government does not have a hard time uh, legislating. The Europeans can legislate, but then we talked about, Paul, how Europeans are struggling to enforce those regulations. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't have a hard time enforcing its regulations. When they decide that it's time to crack down on big tech, they will crack down on big tech. It's not that these Chinese companies drag the government to to long battles in the courts or contest 
those decisions against them. But that's just not the case in the in the EU and the United States. So if that is the case, we have forced to conclude that the digital economy is either governed by authoritarians, whereby democratic governments are destined to fail in that same endeavor, or that our digital economies are governed by tech companies, which seems to be increasingly the case in liberal democracies, unless we can show that there is a way that consistent with our democratic values, we can also keep these companies more effectively in check. I, I'm going to allow myself one quote from your book, essentially to, to test the, the thesis whether this ascent to China is inexorable or it can it be at least slowed down, if not stopped in its tracks. You say in the book, it is not the EU that will be forced to choose between China and the US, but rather the US that must choose between joining forces with the EU or allowing Chinese influence to further grow. That said, do you see any appetite for this cooperation between the EU and the US? I asked the question also because very topically the past couple of days, end of last week, there was the EU-US summit where there was lots of fine words about all the different flashpoints around the world. But when it came to these kind of issues of a more of economic nature, there was still they were still wide apart. And so I just wonder to what extent the two sides realize the US that they they have to, have to work together in order to to challenge the the increasing dominance of the Chinese. I think there is a very strong case for closer transatlantic cooperation on these issues. And on good days, the Europeans and Americans understand that. And we see efforts to to try to really consolidate a democratic front and make sure that the US and the EU can put aside those disagreements, which ultimately pale in comparison when you compare to some more fundamental value-based political ideological disagreements uh, that exist between China and the US on one hand, or then China and the EU on the other. So uh, we, we have the Trade and Technology Council, which is an institutionalized way to carry out this dialogue and seek greater uh, alignment um, on technology standards. And, and I, I do think that that is a very important forum for this conversation. Um, at the same time, we also see the, the political shift in the U.S. that really makes it more conducive for the U.S. to abandon some of its long-held commitments to a completely unregulated digital economy. Because Americans increasingly want digital economy to be governed closer to the way the Europeans are governing digital economy. At the same time, there has been this kind of discrepancy that the U.S. has been more aggressive, if I I use the word, in its approach towards China, whereas the Europeans have been more hesitant, more mindful that they need to continue to engage with China. The economic um, ties are very deep and important. And, and many economies within the EU have felt that they cannot afford to alienate China. But there's also been a shift in the EU's position vis-a-vis China over the past year. And I attribute that largely to China's refusal to condemn Russian invasion mm-hmm. of Ukraine that has then hardened attitudes across the EU. So we've seen also the EU move towards greater de-risking, which is the European term that the Americans have now adopted as well. So I see the combination of somewhat greater alignment uh, when it comes to dealing with China, and also then a shift to the direction of the US moving closer to the EU in its own view on on how digital economy ought to be governed. But then, then, Paul, there are certain impediments for the transatlantic collaboration as well. So we talked about already how the US government is not exactly 
functional uh, at, at this time, and it remains deeply polarized. Um, the tech company lobbying remains relentless and often effective in the U.S., and then there's also the looming elections in the United States. So right now, Biden administration is quite committed to a transatlantic dialogue. But there is a, a, a significant uncertainty what happens after the next presidential election. And I think for a good reason, the Europeans feel unsettled and they feel that they cannot be at the mercy of, uh, of American elections every four years. So there is also this very entrenched strategic autonomy and digital sovereignty narrative in the EU that, that is premised on this idea that the, the Europeans just should not be too reliant on China nor the United States. So I don't think the pathway towards cooperation is simple, but there certainly is a shared recognition of the challenge that managing digital authoritarianism and China's growing role in shaping the digital economy present, and also an awareness that it is very difficult for the US or the EU to try to tackle that challenge alone. Well, a final, very brief question then, Anu, to finish off. Uh, your, your book concludes with, um, I may say, quite a, a, a somber message about, it's almost like, even though you're not a politician, a call to arms addressed to both the EU and the US, they, they do have to act, get their act together and work t together. You say in the book also, these these empire battles, uh, competing empires will Will no be there'll be no obvious winner anytime soon, no emerging uh, single anyway, single winner. So the, these is, these tensions will survive for quite some time to come. But, but so, how optimistic are you that the EU and the US will actually realize that sometime sooner rather than later, hopefully, they have to work together? So, I think the goal of the book is to really spell out what are the stakes involved in the decisions that are being made in the United States, in the EU, in China. And it is, you say, the call to arms, but at least a call to action and, and really to uh, uh, explain how um, the world is facing a choice. It is not that the choice is already made, but it is in the process of being made. We are really living at the, the kind of the, the, the moment in time where change is rapid, where uh, we, we clearly have uh, a, a sort of, consequential choices to be made at every level. So it is a choice for governments, for tech companies, for digital citizens to really ask the question, what kind of digital society do we want to live in? And what does it take to get us then closer towards that vision? So the goal is really to elevate the salience of that conversation and explains the the importance of getting those choices right with a much deeper understanding, I hope, of, of what it takes and, and what those choices mean for all of us as individuals and, and members of societies. Well, a very eloquent call to action. We have to leave it there. Anu Bradford, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It was a pleasure.